This week, PG&E files for Chapter 11 with goal to establish Wildfire Trust. Weatherford hires Lazard and Latham. Nine West plant supporters and notes trustees continue fight. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Mark Fisher. This week, I sit down with senior distressed analyst Kyle Russo to discuss the latest from Latin America, including discussion on Venezuela, ballet, and Samarco. It's Sunday, February 3rd. As expected, PG&E commenced a freefall Chapter 11 filing on Tuesday in the Northern District of California. Bankruptcy is the, quote, only viable alternative under the stark circumstances, according to the first day declaration of PG&E CFO Jason Wells, in reference to the deluge of lawsuits and claims resulting from the 2017 and 2018 wildfires. Wells said that the company is seeking to establish a process to resolve its liabilities resulting from the wildfires and to provide compensation, quote, more quickly and more equitably than would be the case in the state court system. Consistent with that view, at the debtors' first day hearing, counsel for the debtors indicated that the establishment of a trust to address wildfire liability claims is one of the debtors' goals in Chapter 11. PG&E also filed an adversary proceeding against FERC, seeking declaratory and injunctive relief to safeguard the bankruptcy court's exclusive authority to adjudicate the rejection or assumption of power purchase agreements. The debtors entered Chapter 11 seeking approval of $5.5 billion in dip financing, composed of a dip revolver with $3.5 billion in commitments, a $1.5 billion dip term loan facility, and a $500 million delayed draw term loan facility. The DIP facilities also provide the debtors with the flexibility to obtain up to an additional $4 billion in incremental term loan and or revolving commitments, subject to further approval by the court. During the first day hearing, we learned that requests have been made to the U.S. trustee to appoint an official public entities committee and to appoint an official wildfire claimants committee. RERIC will be hosting a webinar on Monday, February 4th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time to discuss the bankruptcy, including what we learned at the first day hearing. So ask your salesperson for more information, and we hope you can join us then. On a call to discuss fourth quarter results, CFO Christoph Bosch said that Weatherford recognizes that its looming 2021 maturities have, quote, created concern in the market and that management plans to explore solutions as part of discussions with lenders over coming months. Reorg reported earlier this week that Weatherford is working with Lazard as financial advisor and Latham and Watkins as legal advisor, according to sources. Millbank and PJT have been advising a group of creditors across several tranches since holding an organizational call in November 2018, as previously reported. In the fourth quarter, the oil field services company reported adjusted EBITDA of $210 million and an improvement from $71 million reported in the same period a year ago, but lower slightly sequentially. On the subsequent conference call, the first question regarded what would need to occur for Weatherford with its $7.8 billion debt burden to consider restructuring or a voluntary bankruptcy. Also on the call, said that 
Total revenue in the first quarter would likely decline by the mid-single digits from fourth quarter levels due to seasonality, with adjusted EBITDA, quote, relatively flat sequentially, and an uplift possible from the company's ongoing transformation efforts. CFO Bosch said that free cash flow is expected to be negative, but expected asset sale proceeds should, quote, more than overcome the seasonal weakness in operating cash flows, resulting in overall positive cash flow for the quarter. CFO Mark McCollum said that while he realizes the company's maturity wall is daunting, in particular the approximately $2 billion in 2021, quote, I don't waste a lot of time thinking or planning how to fail. McCollum said that the company is planning to discuss its 2019 maturities and revolve with lenders, during which time it will begin to look at 2021 maturities. Bosch said that the company plans to address its revolver first and then will look next at the 2021 maturities and other pieces of upcoming maturities. The Nine West Debtors sponsor Sycamore Partners Management, the Secured Term Loan Parties, and the Unsecured Term Loan Lenders. Filed briefs this week pushing back at confirmation objections filed by the indenture trustees for the 2019 and 2034 notes. Sycamore urged the bankruptcy court to approve the equity holder settlement embodied in the debtor's plan, and both sets of term loan parties argue that their respective estate action settlements, also incorporated into the plan, are reasonable and should be approved. The debtor's confirmation brief echoed these arguments from the plan supporters and added that none of the objectors' proposed plan constructs are actionable. Nine West says that if the 2019 and 2034 notes trustees had their way, the debtors would, quote, throw away a $115 million cash infusion and risk over $100 million of distributable value to pursue speculative recoveries that ultimately may be worse than the plan. Oral arguments in the debtors' plan confirmation trial are slated to begin on Monday, February 4th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Separately on Thursday, 2034 Notes Trustee Wilmington Savings Fund Society FSB, or WSFIS, filed a motion seeking standing to prosecute on behalf of Debtor 9 West Holdings, Inc., or NWHI, a fraudulent conveyance claim against Cortland Capital Market Services, LLC, and the lenders under the $445 million secure term loan entered into by NWHI in connection with its April 2014 LBO. Wispus explains that it filed the motion, quote, in an abundance of caution to preserve the status quo. Also this week, the Nine West debtors filed their monthly operating report on Thursday for the period running from December 2nd through December 31st, 2018 reporting cash receipts of $87.3 million and disbursements of $119.8 million. Compared with the prior reporting period, receipts were up 5.3% from $82.9 million and disbursements were down 1.5% from $121.7 million. Friday afternoon brought a huge breakthrough in the long-standing $1.5 billion term loan avoidance litigation in the General Motors cases. Counsel to the Motors Liquidation Company Avoidance Action Trust filed a letter to the bankruptcy court announcing that the parties in the avoidance action, quote, reached an agreement in principle to fully resolve the above captioned action on January 31st. The letter was submitted with concurrence of term loan administrative agent J.P. Morgan, the defendant's steering committee, and the Motors Liquidation Company, Guck Trust. 
In case you don't remember the infamous story that lies behind the litigation, in 2008, Mayor Brown accidentally filed a UCC3 statement that terminated the term lender's lien on numerous GM assets. The lien termination has been the subject of a number of important court decisions and was the origin of the years-long dispute between the Avoidance Action Trust and the term loan lenders. The proposed settlement announced on Friday would resolve both the Avoidance Action Trust claims against the term loan defendants and the cross-claims filed by defendants, according to the letter. The Avoidance Action, Action Trust remarked, quote, the parties are currently engaged in negotiating the definitive settlement documentation to present to the court, and we expect to be in a position to provide the court with a further update about the settlement on or before February 14, 2019. The letter did not disclose other details on the settlement. On the island of Puerto Rico, on Thursday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain entered an order regarding the submission of a revised proposed order, establishing the Go Claim Objection Procedures providing parties with both general and specific guidance. At a hearing on Wednesday, Myers Rial of Proskauer Rose, counsel for the PROMESA Oversight Board, provided the court with a status update, saying that the PROMESA Oversight Board has had significant one-on-one -on -one discussions with certain parties and expects, quote, material progress toward a Commonwealth plan of adjustment as mediation talks resume next month. Surya also said that negotiations with respect to a file restructuring support agreement for PREPA continue with non-insured bondholders holding $3.2 billion of PREPA's $8.3 billion in debt. The special counsel to the Oversight Board also said that the final report in connection with the Oversight Board's McKinsey investigation will be released by February 18th. In a Wednesday opinion, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit issued an opinion in the ERS security interest dispute, affirming in part and reversing in part a ruling by the Title III Court. The First Circuit vacated the Title III Court's holding that the ERS bondholder's security interests can be avoided under PROMESA. Specifically, the Court of Appeals affirmed the District Court's ruling that financing statements filed in 2008 did not perfect the bondholder's security interests based on the lack of a sufficient description of the collateral, but concluded that the ERS bondholders then satisfied the requirements for perfection beginning in December 2015, based on 2015 and 2016 financing statement amendments read in conjunction with the 2008 financing statements. The First Circuit therefore vacated the District Court's holding that the ERS bondholder security interests can be avoided under PROMESA explaining that PROMESA's incorporation of the bankruptcy code, quote, does not allow for the avoidance of perfected liens. On Tuesday, Governor Ricardo Rosseo announced the nomination of Chief Financial Officer Raul Maldonado to serve as both Treasury Secretary and Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and said that holding both posts would enable him to carry out all the functions related to his CFO role. The PROMESA board said it welcomes the announcement that the Commonwealth is, quote, taking constructive actions to further the implementation of the Office of the Chief Financial Officer, which the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan requires, quote, to ensure the responsible financial stewardship of Puerto Rico's resources. The move followed the resignation of Treasury Secretary Teresita Fuentes over its policy disagreements related to the Office of the CFO. Other top red stories of the week were... One, Acorn discloses engagement at PJT, Alex Partners, Kravath. Two, 
Acosta Q418 revenue down 13.2%, adjusted EBITDA down 28.3%, and three, court to rule on February 6th on Synergy debtors' request to retain Centerview as investment banker. Now, here's Jim Holloway, as usual, with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Mark. Good morning, all. It's a busy week, and earnings ain't even fully ponus yet. So brace yourselves, because it only gets better from here. So on Monday, February 4th, we have a confirmation hearing in Nine West, which was pushed forward from last week. Hearing in the Sears matter related to the proposed going concern sale to ESL and the expiration of Mr. Hornbeck's offer to swap his 5 and 7 eighths 2020 bonds for 9.5% term loans due in 2025. And just like to work in an additional reminder here about our webinar concerning PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, and their rather large Chapter 11. You know, I did mention last week, I think, that I'm seeing an awful lot of cars with California IA plates here in Lone Star State. Bless your hearts. Um, I did neglect to mention, though, for which I apologize, that your quickest way home, back to your coast, is I-10, which goes through San Antonio, or I-20 through Waco and Abilene. Safe travels, y'all. And on to Tuesday, February 5th, we have earnings from Transdime, which this past week sold a whole lot of bonds, about $4.5 billion worth, to finance purchase of Esterline. Both their websites feature pictures of military aircraft, so I guess they both do a lot of them government contract type things. And there's even more reorg for y'all in New York with our panel on credit default swaps, engineered defaults, and exotic transactions at the Parker, New York at 119 East 56th Street. Wednesday, February 6th, we have earnings from Navios and Peabody Coal, an evidentiary hearing for Sears, and a DS hearing for Mission Coal. Thursday, February 7th, second day hearing in Shopco, and earnings from Mattel. And Friday, February 8th, an action-packed end of the week with earnings from Bristow and CBL. Another confirmation hearing scheduled for Nine West, an expedited discovery hearing for Neiman Marcus, and a forbearance expiration for old friends Ditech. I think that's about enough to keep us occupied. Thanks for listening, y'all, and back to New York. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all that and more in the coming week. And now I turn it back over to my co-host for this week, Mark, to discuss the latest from Top Latin America Credits with Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Kyle Owusu. Thank you, Karen. So I am here again with Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Analyst uh, for Latin America, and we're going to talk about a few situations that have been uh, extremely topical, both in the distressed world, uh, and, but also in, um, in, in the news world, uh, in the media world. Um, these names uh, include uh, Venezuela, uh, Valet, and Samarco. So uh, with that, Kyle, let's uh, jump right into it. Uh, if you could uh, please describe the um, situation um, that's, that's going on in uh, Venezuela. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so on January 14th, Juan Guaido, the president of Venezuela's National Assembly, invoked Articles 233 um, and 350 of the country's constitution and assumed office to begin a new electoral process. Um, on the same day, you saw a, a flurry of international organizations releasing statements. Um, so the U.S. Department of State um, commended the courage of the National Assembly's leadership. You had the Organization of American States, or OAS, recognizing Guaido as the new president. 
And um, interestingly, the the same day uh, or on Sunday, um, Guaido was arrested by Venezuela's National Intelligence Service agents, but released uh, minutes later. Um, January 23rd, uh, the Venezuela opposition parties began hosting nationwide demonstrations against the Maduro regime, um, and members of the National Assembly passed an agreement to install a transitional government. The next day, um, the U.S., Argentina, Brazil, and Canada all issued statements in support of Guaido and, and recognized him as Venezuela's interim president. The EU also issued its own statement, but did not go so far as to recognize Guaido as the president, instead just calling on Venezuela to immediately begin a political process to hold free and fair elections. Russia, on the other hand, um, through its its foreign ministry, said that the scenario in Venezuela has a, approached a dangerous line and uh, warned that the U.S. and its allies are pushing the country towards the abyss of a bloody civil war. Um, on January 28th, the United States transferred control of U.S. bank accounts to the Venezuelan government and its central bank. Um, I'm sorry transferred control of the U.S. bank accounts belonging to the Venezuelan government and its central bank to Guaido. Um, And Senator Marco Rubio um, disclosed uh, that that piece of information, that the the control of the central bank had been transferred to Guaido. Um, And then also Guaido took steps to limit access um, Maduro's access to, to 31 tons of gold in central bank reserves in custody at the Bank of England. Um, finally, on January 28th, you had uh, the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, uh, sanctioning PDVSA, um, and tra- trading in, in PDVSA bonds um, has now effectively stopped. Um, one interesting thing to note about those sanctions is if you look at General License Number 7, uh, which actually authorizes certain activities involving PDV holding and Citgo holding, um, that authorization is valid through April 28, 2019. Um, by way of background, PDV Holding is a subsidiary of PDVSA. PDV Holding owns Citgo Holding, um, which is a, a the the sort of widely known U.S. Uh, oil servicer with with that with a lot of gas stations across Texas and other other states in the U.S. Um, the PDVSA 2020 bond is guaranteed by 50.1 percent of shares of Citgo Holding. Um, Torino Capital, um, who has been following the situation very closely, uh, put out a note um, remarking on the April 28th date, saying that the date appears not to be coincidental and pointing out that it comes one day after the due date for the coupon on the PDVSA 2020 bond. Um, And so their point was that uh, a a PDVSA default on the 2020 bond um, is is essentially guaranteed because PDVSA has no incentive to pay that bond given PDVSA's loss of Citgo, um, and PDVSA does not have the capacity to pay that bond since doing so would be considered a sanctions violation, um, and therefore the the sanction status of Citgo, the the company Torino um, noted will persist only until the default leads Venezuela to relinquish control of the firm. So in other words, if PDVSA defaults on the 2020, um, on that April 28th coupon, um, and the the ends, uh, ends up losing Citgo as a result, that April 28th authorization uh, is no longer valid.
Great. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for you know the full update. Uh, so if we focus on, you know, clearly the last point uh, has a lot of effect, uh, direct effect on on bondholders here. But if you focus on the the few things that have been making a lot of the you know the headlines in the cable news networks and the political uncertainty, how does all of that affect bondholders? Sure. So Venezuela has a, a limited ability to restructure its outstanding debt with the current regime in place. And the the United States is going to lift sanctions only after the Republic um, restores democratic rule under an internationally recognized administration. We know Guaido has the support of, of the West and a lot of the, uh, the, the international community. Um, and so the idea is that if, if Guaido and his administration, you know, Take to assume power. Um, it facilitates, or it's yeah, it facilitates um, that 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 restructuring. And you know, the market has priced in a, a lot of pessimism, and uh, this is a slight positive, increasing the probability of of restructuring with an internationally recognized administration. And so, I think the bonds uh, the bonds are reacting to that. And for those of us uh, that continue to follow the headlines, what should we be looking for? So I think people are going to be on the lookout for any cracks at all in the relationship between Maduro and the military, especially senior officials. Um, so that that will be something to to look out for on the horizon, just trying to gauge um, how much uh, how how close how close he is with the military and whether or not that support will continue. Great, and and uh, you know if that wasn't all enough, uh, the clearly there's a, there's a lot of um, you know other things that we're looking out for other entities as well uh, you know talk to us about what else you're looking out for in Venezuela absolutely so you've got um, the the ongoing Crystal X litigation uh, Crystal X filed its brief with the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit rec- requesting that the court uphold the attachment of the PDVH shares in satisfaction of uh, Crystal X's unpaid judgment from April 2016. So, by way of background, Crystal X has a $1.2 billion judgment resulting from Venezuela's expropriation of Crystal X's mining interest in 2008. the, the district court um, issued a, a decision on August 9th, allowing Crystal X to take control of shares issued by PDVSA, and PDVSA is appealing the district court's decision. Um, Crystal X's brief for the, with the, in front of the United States Court of Appeals argues, uh, amongst other things, that although PDVSA tries to portray itself as an ordinary state oil company and Venezuela as an ordinary owner, the reality is that PDVSA is extensively controlled by the Venezuelan government. Great, thank you, Kyle, for for that overview. Clearly, a lot uh, you know that we're going to be looking out for, and uh, you'll continue to follow for us. So, moving along, um, mining company uh, Vale, uh, what's going on there? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, just to take a step back, um, just to start off with with Vale's capital structure, um, as of as of September thirtieth, twenty eighteen. Um, you know, roughly, uh, you know, call it six, seventeen billion of, of total debt. Um, you've got the three three point three billion of, of bank loans and around, um, you know, eight point six billion of Valley Overseas Senior Unsecured Notes. 
Um, you have Valley Canada senior unsecured notes, um, roughly 400 million. Those are both subsidiaries. Um, and then moving to the to the parent co level, you have roughly 850 million of three three and uh, three and a quarter Valley senior unsecured notes. Um, and then one and a half billion of, of, of additional senior unsecured debt. So very large capital structure. Um, and you know the, what's going on is is essentially you had a uh, another tailings dam failure um, in in the state of Minas Gerais. Um, in this time, um, with the the Brumadinho um, the, in the Brumadinho area, and this is basically the second tailings dam disaster related to Valet um, within within a period of five years. So there's a lot of frustration with the company. So you know we'll we'll talk about you know another related company, Samarco, uh, in a bit. But uh, you know they had to shut down production because of their dam failure. So you think Valet will have to do the same? Yeah, so on, on January 29th, Valet said that it plans to halt the production of iron ore um, from a number of its units. Uh, so the units um, that were that were constructed um, with 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 tailing dams similar to um, the one that failed, um, th- those units will be shut down. The estimated impact is roughly 40 million tons uh, per year, um, which represents around 10% of production. Um, Valet said that. Um, it's going to decommission the tailings dams over three years and anticipates that it will cost $1.3 billion. Under the plan, the structures are going to be uh, reintegrated, so so decharacterized as tailing dams and then reintegrated into the environment, as, as Valet says. Um, the company expects that it will partially um, offset the, uh, the decrease in production by increasing production um, of, of other systems in the area. So, at least for now, it seems like Valet will have to shut um, part of its production, but, but the, the impact seems somewhat limited. And wh- what do we know about the fines right now? Sure. So Valley said over the, that over the weekend, judges in, in Belo Horizonte and Brumadinho um, both granted attachments over Valet's bank accounts of up to 11 billion Brazilian reais, or around 2.9 uh, billion dollars. Um, Valet also received around uh, 350 million um, of administrative sanctions, and the company also faces an injunction from a labor court in in Brazil city of Betim that freezes um, 800 million uh, reais um, to ensure that 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 victims um, from the dam collapse are compensated. One thing to note um, is that Valet reported, um, as of September 30th, uh, $6 billion of, of cash and cash equivalents um, and $5 billion uh, of availability on its revolving credit line. So the the fines so far um, amount to, the potential fines so far amount to over 11 billion Brazilian reais, but it's important to note that the company does have around 11 billion, um, a little over 11 billion actually, of available liquidity. Great. So moving along, then, um, let uh, Samarco, which we had uh, mentioned briefly, another mining company. Uh, if you could walk us through the capital structure, who's involved, what's the situation? Yeah, sure. So Samarco has around five point six billion dollars of debt. Um, that includes roughly eight hundred ninety million reimbursement obligations uh, related to the Mariana Tailings Dam failure. 
Um, there is a little under 9 to 10 million outstanding of related party shareholder debentures, around 1.6 billion of export prepayment debt, and roughly 2.2 billion of New York law governed senior unsecured bonds. Um, there are crossholders in the bonds and loans. We are unsure about specific numbers. Um, in terms of the parties involved, you've got Samarco being represented by JP Morgan and Clifford Chance, Vale represented by Molis, BHP, Rothschild. Um, the export lenders, uh, FTI and Sidley Austin, and the bonds, uh, Houlihan and Deckard. Uh, so you mentioned Valet, which you know obviously we we now know uh, you know pretty well. They own fifty percent of uh, Samarco. The lockup agreement it's between Samarco and its creditors. Um, you know that recently ended. So how does this uh, how does the Brumadino incident affect creditor negotiations? So again, um, you know, given that 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 Valet itself has 11 billion U.S. dollars of liquidity, um, I think that the 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 idea is that at least from the Valet end, um, there is uh, some some capacity to withstand some of some of the the fallback. Um, now from Samarco's end, I think that the Brumadino incident makes negotiating a lot more difficult because the parties now have to think about questions including who. Is going to be driving Valet's negotiations? Will Valet's management team be replaced? Um, what kind of financial support can Samarco expect from Valet going forward? Um, and how are the regulators going to treat Samarco now? And how does that affect the the timing of uh, Samarco's restart of, of the restart of Samarco's operations? So, for example, I mean, I mean, you had um, Brazilian. Uh, regulator CMAD, their environmental uh, environmental regulator, um, proposed a resolution that suspends all analyses of ongoing environmental processes related to dam disposal. Now that relates back to Samarco because Samarco said in its annual report that in order to restart operations at its mining complex, in addition to a license to use its Allegria South Pit. As a tailings deposit site, disposal site rather, uh, Samarco would need a corrective operation license um, in order to restart. Samarco filed an application for its corrective operating license uh, with CMAD in September 2017, but now you have CMAD saying that it has suspended all analyses. Um, and so that just points to uh, potential timing risk as far as Samarco restarting its operations. Great. And um, in terms of the, uh, the the uh, creditors, you know what's what's going on. Any disclosures um, uh, from the company or anyone involved since the lockup agreement ended? Yeah, sure. So there there have been some uh, some disclosures from 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 the company um, regarding the lockup agreement agreement. Um, you know, it, sorry, there have been disclosures from the company now that the lockup agreement um, has ended. And you know, the the the, the main point of contention or, or the fundamental gating issue, um, as the the uh, bondholder representatives put it in their note. Um, is that the the proposed treatment of the shareholder debentures um, and the Renova obligations um, as senior or peri pursued debt is a, is a fundamental gating issue, and the creditors said that those obligations must be equitized or structurally subordinated. Um, another issue that that you know evidences the the where the parties are in these negotiations. Um, the initial creditor com- proposal contemplated liens on Samarco assets that would be subordinated to tax claims. The subsequent creditor proposal left this item to be determined. However, the 
Sa- Marco's proposal contemplated debt being treated as unsecured. Um, so the, the the parties are pretty far apart on issues on those issues, but also on the issue of uh, um, unpaid interest, whether or not that should be um, calculated at the the contractual rate or the default interest rate, um, maturity, uh, the shareholder funding commitment, and so these are all um, items that are going to be have to have to be worked out. Now, again, the, the, the timing element makes this all very difficult. I mean, Samarco in its assumptions said that a, a six-month move backwards um, for the restart date for its first um, for its for, for its first facility, um, a six-month move backwards results in a negative 147 million impact on its cash flow assumptions, and so you can see how that 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 is really going to be driving the negotiations going forward. So, what's next? Yeah, so that that's going to be very tough, um, but we're we're going to be looking for more clarity from Valet before trying to anticipate um, the the potential outcomes in Samarco. Um, we're going to be looking for again what type of what level of support Valet is uh, both willing to give and able to give, um, and any any sort of management changes on that front. We're also going to be monitoring some some market activity since previously restricted lenders are now able to sell exposure. Um, we want to see sort of if, if the groups or if there's any turnover in in the groups and and sort of how the the, the capital structure um, is is held amongst amongst uh, distressed investors. So we'll be we'll be watching that as well. Great, thank you, Kyle. We'll be watching too, and um, appreciate that. That overview or that update in those few situations, clearly a lot to look uh, be looking out for in the distressed world in Latin America. So look forward to the next time you're on. Uh, thanks again. And Karen, back to you. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lyman. This has been The Week in Reorg.